Uh, open up in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and as you were doing so, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1. <clears throat> and believe it or not, we're just going to confine ourselves this morning to the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is the word of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, you may be seated. Brothers and sisters, some things are worth fighting for, and some aren't. And the ability to discern between the two, that really is a part of maturity, right? It, maturity is you and I being able to know, is this a mountain or is this a molehill? For example, I know people who will stake their life on how the dishwasher is to be loaded, I live with a woman who is convinced the utensils must face down. Others will fight over the pronunciation. Is it gif or jif? And still others are ready to go to the mat over the way the toilet paper should be hung. Is it over or is it under? I will confess to you, I'm, I'm not willing to fight over those sorts of things. But there are things that we should fight for. There are things that should cause us to, to sort of rise up. The gospel is one of those things. Truth, the church, the, the glory of God. You and I, we may spend blood and sweat and tears, but if it is spent upon God and upon truth and upon the gospel and upon the church, then I assure you that is not a waste. Now, I say that because this morning marks the beginning of a new sermon series, 1 through 1 Timothy. And really, that's what the whole of this letter is about. Paul wants Timothy to see, and, Holy, and the Holy Spirit, he wants us to see, that the Christian faith, it really is worth fighting for. It was certainly the case in Ephesus. That's where Timothy was. It seems that he was personally dispatched there by the Apostle Paul himself. And, and Timothy is in Ephesus. He's there because not all is well. In, in fact, it appears that things are on the verge of going off the rails. We know this because of the, 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 the magnitude of the issues that are addressed in 1 Timothy. What, what was plaguing the church, you ask? Well, the list is legion. According to 1 Timothy 1.3, false doctrine is being propagated. We have to understand, church, false doctrine is cyanide to our souls. It's absolutely lethal. On top of that, and false doctrine always does this, by the way, the church seems to be preoccupied with what 1 Timothy 1.4 calls Myths and endless genealogies. 
which promote, 1 Timothy 1.4, speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. You see, the point is that when true doctrine is absent and false doctrine thrives, well, well, everything sort of gets mucked up. Everything becomes upside down. Black is white, light is dark. The church begins to major on minors and minor on majors. It's also clear that those in the congregation are misusing God's law, 1 Timothy 1.7. Like using a vacuum cleaner as a snowblower. They're making a mess of everything. To make matters worse, at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 1, it is revealed some in the congregation have apostatized. They've, they've just repudiated the faith altogether. Just as Judas turned his back on Christ, so have Hymenaeus and Alexander. It also seems that the very worship of the church is all out of whack. I say that because if you were to look at chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we read these words. Paul tells Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, hear this, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the implication is there were those not behaving as they should have in the church. In chapter 4, you move out of the frying pan into the fire. Chapter 4, verse 2, we are told that consciences are seared. Chapter 4, verse 3, these good gifts that our Heavenly Father has given to us, gifts like marriage and food, they are being forbidden from the people of God. And by the time you sort of get to the end, chapter 6, verse 4, it's revealed that the people in the church, they have this sort of lustful craving for controversy and quarreling. They just, they're just at each other's throats, fighting over everything. The whole thing is really ugly. This is why Paul, no doubt, ends the letter in 1 Timothy 6, 20 with a plea. He writes, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Or to say it another way, faith, the Christian faith, Timothy, it is worth fighting for. Now, as you hear that laundry list of vices that plagued the ancient church in Ephesus, let me ask you this. Does it really sound all that different from today's church? In so much of the American church, what do we see except doctrine is decried and robust theology is seen as an enemy? We hear all the time, give us Jesus, not doctrine, as if you can have the true Jesus without true doctrine. The church today is also given over to all manner of garbage that will not profit. How else do you explain so much of the charismatic movement? Equally disturbing is how the law of God is maligned today, not just by the world, but also by so many in the church. How else do we explain this sort of ubiquitous line that we hear all the time? I have my truth and you have your truth. How do we explain that except by, by sort of zooming out and, and recognizing that in this crazy world that we live in, we actually think that we have become the lawgiver? I am a law 
unto myself. Similarly, so much of the so-called worship of the church today can only be described as strange fire. Just ask Nadab and Abihu how that turned out. It's also tragic to realize that many professing Christians' consciences have been utterly seared. Think about it this way. What just a generation ago would have caused Christians in America to wince is now openly celebrated by entire denominations. In addition, in many of these same mainline denominations, marriage itself is either demonized or it is attacked with the uh, popularity and the celebration of things like same-sex mirage. And finally, how many churches have imploded owing to controversy and quarreling? This is why you've got a first Baptist and a second Baptist and a third Baptist, because the color of the carpet really is that important. You see, Christian, we're not all that different from the situation in Ephesus. Sure, there's some distance between us. That's true both in time and in locale. But really, the, the, the problems, the issues, the heart conditions, they all remain the same. Just as not all was well in Ephesus, so not all is well here, even in the Pacific Northwest. Every once in a while, I'll have an opportunity to talk to Christians, and they'll make some sort of lamentable comment, and this is usually done by younger Christians, and they will lament the fact that, that the church today is not like the early church, as if the church in the Bible times was some supermodel. church had warts. The church was jacked up then, and the church is jacked up today. So what's the remedy then? What's the remedy? Well, please hear this. What we need is godly leadership in the church. That really is where it starts, brothers and sisters. The church today, it is in need of men, men of character and men of conviction and men of courage. So, so this will be men who will speak the truth, but also live in light of the truth. Men who would actually fear God more than anyone or anything else. Men who are truly convinced that God and God alone can save. And men who are committed to proclaiming the whole counsel of God to the people of God. That's what we need today. And that was the same need back in Ephesus. And so what does Paul do? But he puts pen to paper. He writes, if we can put it this way, he writes as a pastor to a pastor about pastory things. That's why, incidentally enough, we call First and Second Timothy and Titus pastoral epistles. Because they are written by Paul to men overseeing local churches. And in these letters, Paul is encouraging men to be men. Again, men of character and conviction and courage. Now this particular letter, 1 Timothy, it begins in some pretty unremarkable ways. 
I say that because this letter of Paul, it opens the way nearly all of his letters do. He begins with who he is. And as the first word tells us, this is Paul. This is the same Paul who used to be Saul. I say this because I trust that many of you are still participating in our yearly Bible challenge reading. And so you're right in the middle of the book of Acts, and you are following the journeys of this Paul slash Saul. I have to confess, this was something that used to confuse me greatly when I was a new Christian. In fact, it got so messed up in my head that I got the two Sauls in the Bible confused. I thought that the Saul of the Old Testament, the first king of Israel, was the same Saul of the New Testament, the one in the book of Acts that is also called Paul. So I had to sit down with somebody, and they explained to me that Saul's not that old. These are actually two different individuals. But this Paul is the Paul or Saul of the book of Acts. But that's not the only way that he introduces himself, right? Because immediately after his name, he says what? He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And that word apostle, it needs to be pressed on just a little bit, and that's for two reasons. On the one hand, there is a ton of confusion today about what an apostle is. And then on the other hand, it's actually pretty vital to the whole tone of Paul's letter. So let's start with this confusion today. Know this. In the New Testament, the dominant usage of the word apostle, it has a very specific meaning. It's not open to a lot of wiggle room. It refers first and foremost to those 12 apostles handpicked by Christ himself. And they were handpicked by Christ because they saw Christ, they witnessed his ministry and his miracles, they, they were witnesses of his resurrection, and because they were there from the beginning, because they were a part of this whole thing, he, he commissions them as his ambassadors. And as his ambassadors, or again, we would say his apostles, these men were given a peculiar authority, an authority that included them authoring the documents of the new covenant, or what we would call the New Testament. It's really important to understand this. Because when we're talking about an apostle in the New Testament, we're talking about a man who has an authority that you and I don't. And that is that he receives direct revelation from Christ so that when he shoots off an email, it is the very word of God. Now, I don't mean to get too far afield here, but this is actually one of the things that makes Paul such an anomaly and really what got him into so much trouble, especially in Corinth. What do I mean? Well, Paul, if you read the New Testament carefully, was routinely challenged with respect to his apostleship. Why? Well, because unlike the original 12, Paul was not an eyewitness of Christ's earthly ministry. Neither was he there on Resurrection Sunday. To be candid, Paul was a Johnny-come-lately. This is why he says in 1 Corinthians that he was an apostle born out of time. And his detractors, they didn't grow weary in reminding him of this, and they didn't grow weary in reminding the churches of this very fact. 
So then what do we do with Paul? Is verse 1 true? Is he really an apostle? Because again, he wasn't there at the beginning. He didn't witness the resurrected Christ. Christ did not send him out. And the answer is yes, Paul is an apostle. But the question is how or on what grounds? And the answer lies really in remembering his miraculous conversion. Remember what happens in Acts chapter 9? Paul is a zealous unbeliever at this point. And as he is on the road to Damascus to actually imprison Christians, you'll remember he is intercepted by Christ himself. And it's there on that road when Christ reveals himself to Paul. And it's also on that same road when the resurrected Christ personally commissions him and sends him on his journey. So we have to see that is where Paul's apostleship is rooted. It is rooted in his personal encounter that he had with the risen Christ. Now, as we continue down this rabbit hole, it's worth pointing out that Paul's conversion experience, the one that I just told you about, it is recorded, oddly enough, on three separate occasions in the book of Acts. Once in chapter 9, once more in chapter 22, and then finally once more in chapter 26. And we might think that's sort of an odd thing. Why would Luke be so preoccupied with continuing to put before us this experience that Paul had with the risen Christ. And I actually think the reason is, is because Luke, the author of Acts, he's going out of his way to try to demonstrate the apostolic credentials of Paul. What the book of Acts reveals is that Paul is by no means an an imposter. He really is an apostle of Christ. Christ met him. Christ sent him. He is legit. He's a bona fide apostle. So to return to verse 1, when we read that Paul was an apostle, that word apostle, it is being used in its technical sense. Enter the confusion. There are those today who want to suggest church planters or missionaries are apostles. And so sometimes they'll refer to them as lowercase a apostles. I want to submit to you that I think such a habit is very, very misleading and unwise. It it brings about all sorts of unnecessary confusion. Then there are others who just go full tilt, and they will tell you that they are apostles and that they actually receive direct revelation from Christ just as Paul did, just as the actual apostles did. And then they'll perform all sorts of sketchy miracles to supposedly authenticate their calling. I don't know if you know this, but there's actually one of these so-called apostles right here in our own town. I've seen on the internet when he prays away demon clouds. And if you doubt him, he'll actually take a quarter and he'll stick it on the wall and it'll hold there all by itself. That way you know he's a real apostle. I should tell you, for those who doubt, I actually have a certificate in my office that declares I am an apostle cost me $35 online, 
but it was mailed to me in a nice little sleeve. I haven't quite perfected my quarter-sticking trick yet, but I, too, am an apostle. And, of course, this is foolish. It is not just foolish, though, and it's not something that we should just sort of chuckle at, though we should laugh at this stuff because it's insane. But we should all recognize as well how particularly dangerous this stuff is and how this idea of modern-day apostles and, and really prophets, how it, ought to, how it ought to be avoided at all costs. You might call them snake oil salesmen. You might call them charlatans. I personally miss the good old days and we used to call them what they are, and that is heretics. When someone stands in the place of Christ and says, I am an apostle, I receive direct revelation outside of the word of God, listen to me, you ought to run from these people. Like literally run from them. And I use that strong language because the New Testament is more than clear that the office of apostle and prophet, for that matter, it has ceased. So you can know, right at the front end, you can know from jump, if somebody comes to you or sends you a letter in the mail or sends you a book or you see them on TBN or you catch them on the internet, when someone is claiming to be an apostle or a prophet, you can know right away that these guys are trouble. It, 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 you, just as you wouldn't go roll around and play in poison ivy, neither should you give any time to rolling around or playing with modern-day apostles and prophets. They are, to use the language of 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says they are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, Paul goes on to say, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So just because someone is on the internet just because someone has some letters after their name, just because someone speaks very smoothly. The telltale sign is when they start saying that they're an apostle or a prophet. Run. Now, the other reason to press on this word apostle is because it's actually really important for the whole argument that Paul is going to make throughout this letter. Catch this. Though Timothy is Paul's dear friend, something that we'll discover in just a very quick moment, the letter before us, if you notice, is much more formal than that. Think of you husbands for a moment writing a letter to your wife. You probably wouldn't sign it at the end, sincerely, Frank Smith, your husband. Hopefully, hopefully husbands, you would leave off that sort of formality, right? But not Paul. He makes sure to tag right on the front end that he is an apostle. Does Timothy not know that? Of course he does. So why is that? And the short answer is this. This letter isn't just for Timothy. It's addressed to Timothy. I understand that. But this is not some private letter that belongs in a shoebox that's going to be tucked away in the attic somewhere. This is much more public than that. Another indication of the public nature of this letter is how it ends. The very last words are found in 1 Timothy 6.21. This is what you read. Grace be with you 
But catch this, that word you, it is plural. In the South, what would they say? Grace be with y'all. The point is, there's a wider audience intended here than just Timothy. And that wider audience is namely the churches. So what you have to see is sort of zoom out. This is written to Timothy in his official capacity, and it is written by Paul in his official capacity. But why? I think here's the point. Timothy needed encouragement. He needed strengthening. And so what Paul does here is he sort of in a roundabout way puts his apostolic stamp on Timothy. It's as if Paul is saying, Timothy, you know this, Christ commissioned me. I am a bona fide apostle. And as an apostle, I've sent you. I've commissioned you. Timothy, you are not a square peg trying to be slammed into a round hole. You're not the wrong guy for the job. Timothy, this is where you belong. To which you might respond, well, does Timothy really need that sort of reassurance? Yes. Just as most of us struggle and doubt and question this, that, or the other thing, so did Timothy. Few of us have faith that can move mountains. I I know I don't. And apparently Timothy didn't either. He needed something of a spiritual shot in the arm. And so catch this. Before laying out in this letter all that Timothy needs to do in the church, Paul wants to remind him at the front end of all that God has already done for him. Now, speaking of Timothy's reassurance, here's what we know. For starters, Timothy was comparatively young. Paul will encourage him later in 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one despise you for your youth. And while there's no way to be like precise about his birthday, most conclude that Timothy was somewhere in his 30s. And in the ancient world, at least... That was still considered very young for the sort of leadership that Timothy had. We can imagine that some in the congregation where Timothy served, they saw him, they saw his baby face, they would shake their heads. Who does this guy think he is? He's way too young to speak to us like that. Others would murmur in the congregation, you know, I... I don't know if this guy has the chops for this. People would leave, and on the car ride home, they would talk. He, he can't call me to, to faithfulness in that area. He's never gone through what I've gone through. People would get in their prayer meetings and gossip about stuff. They'd say, this Timothy, I, he's just too inexperienced. He's, he's too new. He's too green. Others would text back and forth in the congregation. I, you know, I, I just don't know about this new guy. He's so, he's so young. His sermons aren't as good as that other guy that we listen to on the internet. Still others would complain. I, you know, I just wish he had more gray hair. That way we could relate to him. This idea of Tim, Timothy being young. It also, no doubt, fueled the fact that he seemed to be timid. 
There's a passage in 1 Corinthians that is telling. And just so that you know, and you know, there's, there's some generalities here, but, but 1, 1 Corinthians was written around the same time as 1 Timothy was. And toward the end of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he makes this following comment. He says, and this is 1 Corinthians 16.10, 1 Corinthians 16.10, if you want to look it up or jot it down, says this, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. And then Paul adds this line in 1 Corinthians 16.11, so let no one despise him. Let no one despise him. Put him at ease. I might be reading a little bit into it. Bear with me. But, but it seems that Timothy's a bit anxious. He's, he's not quite settled. And therefore, Paul encourages the church. You know, when, when Tim and Timothy shows up, put him at ease. Or consider 2 Timothy, which is, you can imagine, you go to seminary to learn this. 2 Timothy was written after 1 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy 1.6... Paul has to remind Timothy, here's the, here's the text, to fan into flame the gift of God. And then he goes on to say, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So in 2 Timothy, now years have passed, and Timothy still needs to be reminded to, 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 to use the spiritual gifts that God has given him. And more than that, the not-so-subtle implication seems to be that Timothy needed to be warned not to be taken captive by fear. It seems that, that Timothy had a tendency to always be on his heels as opposed to his toes. On top of all of this, we learn that he also had some sort of physical issues too. 1 Timothy 5.23 Paul tells Timothy, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So apparently, Timothy suffered from some sort of chronic gut stuff. Whatever it was, I don't imagine that it was pleasant. So here's the deal. Timothy had quite a bit stacked against him. John Stott put it quite well. Timothy was young diffident and frail. And so we can imagine that most pastoral search committees today, they wouldn't have given Timothy a second look. And why would they? Think about it. He was inexperienced, and, and it doesn't appear that he was this sort of charismatic, electric individual who could, who could wow crowds and, and loved being the center of attention. No. In fact, it's, it's obvious by what we've read in the New Testament that, that his resume wasn't very deep. He was a rather timid man as opposed to the strong type A personalities that we generally associate with pastors. And besides, he spent way too much time hunkered over in the corner in pain. And yet, Paul, the great apostle Paul, he owns him, doesn't he? He sets his seal on him. Look at how he addresses him in verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Not my associate, not my little worker bee, not even my fellow pastor, but my true child in the faith. Just stop for a moment. Do you hear the warmth? Do you hear the tender affection? Do you hear the love that Paul has again for this young, timid, sickly Timothy? 
with this warm and tender relationship, most likely, we don't know this for certain as we try to put some pieces of the puzzle together, most likely it goes all the way back to Timothy's conversion. On Paul's first missionary journey, he proclaimed the gospel in the regions of Derby and Lystra. And you can go back and read about this in Acts chapter 14. That's probably when Timothy was converted. And mind you, if that's the case, then Timothy would have been at that time in his teens. But nevertheless, he proved himself faithful. So faithful that Timothy later would accompany Paul on missionary journeys. So you can see the affection. My true child in the faith. But chances are, there's actually another layer to this whole thing. The the way that Paul addresses Timothy here, it's probably more than just affection. And I say that because there's a phrase there in in verse 2. That phrase there, true child... It's the common expression, please hear this, for natural childbirth. It's very odd to see it used when there's not an actual blood or physical relationship. Here's where things get really interesting. In Acts chapter 16, verse 1, we're told that Timothy's mother was Jewish, but his father was Greek. You know what this means at the time? It means that Orthodox Jews would have considered Timothy's birth to be illegitimate. He would never be good enough. He'd always be on the outside looking in. And yet Paul embraces him. Paul embraces him as his son. So according to the eyes of the world, while Timothy's physical heritage might have been questioned by some, there was no doubt about his spiritual heritage. He was a son of God, right? He was redeemed by the blood of Christ. He was born again by the Spirit. And because he was a Christian, he was Paul's legitimate spiritual heir, regardless of what his birth certificate said, regardless of the blood flowing through his veins. I should also add that this love that Paul had for Timothy, it's found in more than just the warm words that are in front of us this morning. For example, in 1 Corinthians 4.17, Paul tells the Corinthians, that is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. I I would also point out just in passing that it doesn't appear in the New Testament, at least Paul anyway, he had no problem praising the faithfulness of others. He had, he had no problem praising the faithfulness of Timothy. In fact, there's probably no higher praise than what is recorded for us in Philippians 2. Listen to what Paul says about Timothy in Philippians 2.20. Listen to this and tell me you wouldn't want this said about you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You see, Timothy is utterly unique in his care and his concern for the Philippian Christians. And then Paul goes on to say two verses later, You know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. Is that not a beautiful testimony? 
I mean, think about that. What a, what a glorious, God-exalting legacy. Here's the deal, church. The Christian faith is worth fighting for. And that will require fighting. And that's what the rest of 1 Timothy 1 is going to reveal. It is going to unpack Timothy's marching orders. But here's the problem. Timothy is young. Timothy is timid. Timothy is frail. And so what does Paul do? But he opens this letter to his beloved protege with both barrels. He's saying, Timothy, be encouraged. Be strengthened. I am an apostle, and you are my true child in the faith. I've been with you for years. I've seen the gifts of grace operative in your life. I, I know you are up for the task. Just as Christ commissioned me, Paul says, so I have commissioned you. So, brother, hold the line. Don't give up. Fight. But Timothy, make sure that you fight in light of God and his gospel. I say that because that's really the hinge upon which the door of blessing there in verse 2 turns. That beautiful blessing that Paul pronounces upon Timothy. It's meant to be rebar for his weary soul. He says, verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, please understand, these are not throwaway words. This isn't like so much of the sincerely's that we put upon letters. These are powerful words. These are encouraging words. In fact, these are gospel words. We could go so far as to say that this really is the gospel in just three words. I say that because this grace and mercy and peace, it flows to us from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And these blessings, they break over our weary souls and offer refreshment to us. In the same way that being trapped in a desert and stumbling across an oasis would be refreshment to your body. Church, these gifts, they flow to us from the benevolent hand of our Father. They flow to us from His hand and they are bought and paid for in the very death of Christ, God's Son. When it comes to grace, Grace is the womb from which all the gifts of God are born. We learn from Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved. And that is true. The fact that you woke up this morning not in hell. If you were here this morning and you have been converted to Christ, if... If you have any affections for the Lord Jesus at all, no matter how small they might be, then this is all owing, and I mean all, it is all owing to the magnificent grace of God. But Christian, it is not merely the beginning of the Christian life that finds its genesis in grace, it is also the middle and the end. The entirety of the Christian life, it is owing to grace. 
Another way to say that would be this. What, what we're talking about this morning and, and what 1 Timothy 1-2 is expressing, it's not just saving grace, but it is sustaining grace. If, if I could be sort of crass, it's not just grace that gets you in the covenant. It's grace that keeps you in the covenant. No doubt fledging Timothy needed to hear this, as do we. We need to hear this because our default nature is one of a treadmill, isn't it? It's sort of built into us. We want to work. We want to do. We want to labor. We want to contribute. But what we really need to do is to simply rest in the grace of God. To hear afresh those life-giving words from the end of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God our Savior, through Christ Jesus our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. You don't keep you from stumbling. God does. And God does by His grace. Paul then mentions the blessing of mercy. This particular word, it's used throughout uh, the book of Psalms. And it's used with the idea of God's special care for a person in need. You think Timothy could relate? You think young, timid, sickly Timothy could relate? Of course he could. And church, we all need the mercy of God. We all need God to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that is exactly what he has done in and through Christ's gospel. The, the shedding of Christ's blood, it is God showering us with mercy. Mercy that we don't deserve. Rounding out this threefold blessing is peace. Please understand, peace is the result of God's gospel grace and mercy. Peace is the state of the relationship in light of grace and mercy. Because you know this, I hope, before Christ, before the gospel, we were not at peace, at least not with God. Because of our sin, there was no peace. It was only scorched earth. We were at war with God. But through the Father's grace of sending His Son, and through Christ's death on the cross, we now have peace with God. Not peace with God is something to look forward to one day if you check all the right boxes. Peace with God is something the people of God enjoy now. As Paul would instruct the Roman Christians, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace is ours now with God. Congregation, this is what Timothy needed to hear. And it's what we all need to hear. Despite all the problems in the church for both Timothy and, and for us, Despite all the work to be done and all the repentance to be had, 
for all the reform we labor for and all the revival we pray for, it comes through the gospel. In the gospel, we receive grace and mercy and peace. In the gospel, we are welcomed into the arms of God our Savior, verse 1. And in the gospel, we have hope in Christ, who is our hope, verse 1. And as as Paul will tell Timothy, this faith, it really is worth fighting for. But you can't fight for the faith until you're standing firm in the faith. You can't go to war over the faith until you know that your war with God has ended. And so that is the encouragement that Paul gives Timothy. And that is the encouragement that God gives us this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we gather together this morning. We do so as those who are merely recipients. Yes, we come. We, we traveled here. We got in our cars we're here, we lift our voices to sing, we, we open our Bibles, we stand, we sit, we're, we're doing stuff, of course. But ultimately, we are guests in your house. We are guests at your table. We are those for whom you have showered upon us grace and mercy and peace. And you have done all of this, not because we are good, not because we are worthy, not because we have earned it, not because we have caught your eye or gained your attention, but because in your love you saw fit to draw us to yourself, to give us new hearts, to give to your son, the Lord Jesus, a bride. Thank you for this grace. May we walk in light of it. May we live in light of it. May we be encouraged in the truth of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.